Hello and welcome to Talk D93, Community Consolidated School District 93's podcast hosted by me, Superintendent Dr. David Hill. In it, I sit down from time to time with amazing D93 staff members and other key figures who impact our district to have conversations about specific D93 programs, services, roles, events, history, and even more. I couldn't be more excited to share with you, our listeners, that CCSD 93 is celebrating our 100th anniversary as a school district this year. Through the end of this year, we'll be highlighting CCSD 93's history at our schools and online. And we begin today by kicking off our celebration of 100 years as an organization with Mrs. Carol Ellemeyer, Carol Stream historian and former CCSD 93 staff member. Welcome, Carol. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Carol, thank you so much for being here. With your help, We'll take a trip through history and learn about how CCSD 93 became an organization and the key figures and events that occurred in its early years. Carol, can you tell us a little bit about your personal history with CCSD 93 and with the Carol Stream Historical Society? Sure, I'd be happy to. My family moved to Carol Stream in 1975, and all three of our sons went to District 93 schools, Carol Stream School to be specific and JStream, and also I worked for the district as the community relations director for about 10 years, and I was very involved in our son's education uh, with PTA, PTA activities and activities at the school the whole time that they were in school. And with the Historical Society, I've been a member for over 30 years, and I served as president for eight years. Hmm. Wonderful. Thank you. Could you tell our listeners a little about any specific history surrounding the organization of the district that you are aware of, including what led to it, who the key players were, when it happened, how the boundaries were set, how many students we had at that time? It's an interesting history that goes back a long ways. In order to understand where the district is now and how it got to this point, I think it's important to realize what rural education was like when the district before the district actually was even formed, because it was a rural school district, um, first and foremost, known as Cloverdale School. And that type of school grew out of a formalization of education that started way back in the 1800s. Um, There was an ordinance that was passed in 1885 called the Illinois System of Free Schools, an act to establish and maintain a system for free school. And what this did was it designated a um, portion of land out of every township to support local education, to maintain the local schools. Now, you can realize that there probably wasn't a great deal of revenue that came off of that land, but it was known as federal school land. And this was a common way that schools were supported. Prior to that, schools existed, but they might be funded only by the people who sent their children to that school. So for the district uh, to come out of that framework, we have uh, records that go back to 1896 for District 93. Of course, it wasn't known as District 93 at that point in time. It was Cloverdale School District. So this correlates very nicely with the time frame from when this type of education was being solidified in across the country, actually. This was commonplace. And um, at that point in time, common schools, as they were called, were staffed by teachers who went to normal school, which was um, like 
a year to two years of education. It was not a college degree. And were tested by the county superintendent, not the regional director. <laughs> and then they were able to teach in the, in the rural schools. Cloverdale School, as we mentioned, goes back to 1896. And in 1897, there were 13 students, and their ages ranged from 6 to 13, and there was one teacher. Now, it wasn't uncommon for the school to be closed for the month of March. We don't know exactly why, but my guess is that that was a time to prepare for spring planting, perhaps. And maybe uh, it's a little early, but there were times when the school was closed uh, for a whole month. There was also something called Farmer's Institute that perpetuated through the whole early history before consolidation. And Farmer's Institute, from what I can discover, was basically a time when um, farmers and their families would gather for all kinds of um, seminars, if you will, activities, things to improve um, agriculture and homemaking and even the lives of the children. So this was a very important um, activity and a day of, uh, sometimes more than one day, of learning that was held outside of the school time. Think about the kind of institutes we have today for teachers where they go to workshops, et cetera. Well, I'm imagining that it was a little bit like that, but it was something that was very important. The subject matter that was taught ranged from arithmetic to language, reading, writing, spelling, Geography, physiology, sometimes map drawing, and I had to laugh when I read this, busy work. <laughs> this was written more than once in some of the uh, registers for the, for the schools in the early days. Each class period lasted from 10 to 15 minutes. And you say, why? Well, because there were a number of grades that were being taught. Now, sometimes there weren't students in all grades, but... You know, you might have second graders and third graders and sixth graders and eighth graders, and if you're going to cover all the subjects, you're only going to be able to spend 10 to 15 minutes with each grade level in each subject. And the school day lasted from 9 to 4. So it was a little different style of teaching than we are accustomed to. That is for sure. <laughs> and that whole era kind of began to change in the late 1800s, early 1900s, when urbanization was taking place and the whole um, landscape of education was changing in that um, there was a lot of emphasis on standardization of how things were taught. For example, prior to this time, there was something called the recitation method, which would allow a student, for example, to um, study for maybe two months out of the year, and then they might be gone for two months. But that didn't mean that they missed out on all of that. All they did was pick up where they left off. And that method was commonplace, in, particularly in rural education, for many years until it began to change, which was something that kind of came out of the country life movement which Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, was a proponent of. And at that time, we went to more age-grade education where uh, subjects were taught per grade level, let's say. And we know that by um, 
1927, District 93 schools were fully, it was fully consolidated. Prior to that, and we don't know the exact, I couldn't find the exact date when that happened, but we know that there were rural schools in the area prior to that, other rural schools. In fact, there was one that was located where Glenbard North is now. And interestingly enough, Jay Stream's mother taught there after World War I, uh, which I think is very interesting. Yes, it is. We, I certainly did not know that. <laughs> it's one of those little tidbits of information that, you know, we find kind of interesting because it's such a name that we're accustomed to hearing in this area, the streams, of course. There was a notation uh, in one of the uh, ledgers, student ledgers, that uh, this was actually back in 1897. So I think that the pre-consolidation was already kind of starting to happen then. At the very top of one of the pages was a notation that said, uh, residing in the district, six, 18 students were listed on the ledger. So I think that what had already begun to happen was that other schools f from around the area or other school districts from around the area didn't have as many students as Cloverdale did. And so they would bring their students in because maybe they only had two or three students and they wanted the children to be able to go to school, obviously. So they would send them to us. Send them to us. Right. And mm -hmm. from what I have heard, that was tuition free. Hmm. <laughs> I thought that was rather interesting as well. I can't ver I couldn't verify that, um, but I'm sure at one, some point in time there had to be some kind of a, an agreement made because there would have been, uh, you know, increased costs because of the uh, the need for educating more children than they had previously um, had. And there was um, an increase throughout the 1900s in student enrollment. Um, and it usually ranged from anywhere from like 18 to 30. It varied a lot from year to year. Um, let's see. I think that um, it's very interesting to note that with the urbanization that was beginning to happen, people in um, education were not necessarily on the same page with whether or not rural schools should be consolidated. Well, we know what happened. We know what, what changed because as the urban, urban landscape increased, the rural landscape decreased. So there became a no contest, basically, mm -hmm. with what would happen with education and the need to bring those schools together to continue. Right, right. Well, that was fascinating. Thank you for sharing all of that. Um, we know that our first full-time superintendent of schools was Dr. Elsie Johnson, who served from 1959 to 1982. Can you share a bit about any important figures within the district prior to her and what their accomplishments were? Prior to her, I would say the school board was a very important part of the district. There were uh, two people that instantly come to mind, Earl Tedron and Michael Bentman. Michael was the uh, clerk of the board, which as far as I can ascertain is, was kind of like the treasurer, secretary treasurer of the board. And he was the one who uh, handled all of the construction pieces of the building of the new school. 
which was uh, the three-room brick building that is now the district's early childhood center. And the other person that I mentioned, Earl Tedron, was a very important uh, figure, in my estimation, for the district because he served uh, on the Board of Education and also 13 years as school board president. And a lot of the growth that took place in the 50s was under his tenure. Mm -hmm. So... um, He also ran the general store uh, after his father. The store was located uh, on Old Gary Avenue on the south side of Army Trail Road. It's gone now, but his father had also been a school board member, and his father was the one who founded the store in 1888. So the Tedrons were involved in the community and in the school district for many, many years. I would say that those were two people that, in my research really come to mind. I'm sure there probably were others, mm-hmm. but uh, unfortunately, you don't always have the the benefit of knowing who those people might have been. Right. Uh, Elsie Johnson actually came to work in the district in 1957 as a teacher. Believe it or not, it was a split shift. <laughs> what, what exactly do you mean by split shift? shift. Uh, well, she was teaching grades two, three, four, and five on a half-day schedule because there were too many students. And another teacher was teaching grades six through eight in the afternoon. And another teacher was teaching kindergarten. At one point, some point in time, they moved first grade, second grade, and third, or excuse me, kindergarten, first grade, and second grade to one teacher. They didn't have enough space to um, accommodate the students in the old school. This would have been in the white frame building that stood just to the south of the red brick building that's the early childhood center. So she came as at a time when there were 42 students in her classroom. That's in grades 2, 3, 4, and 5. So she was teaching all of those grade levels in a half-day schedule. Can you imagine trying, <laughs> trying to get everything in? There would be certainly some challenges with that. That would be some challenges with that. And as we know, in 1959, Dr. Johnson became our first superintendent Correct. of schools. Um, can you tell me a little about her tenure as the superintendent and her impact on District 93? Well, I would say she had a significant impact Um, as superintendent in School District 93. When she began the role, was a teacher, principal, superintendent. She did not... Wore a lot of hats there. She did wear a lot of hats. She actually was in the classroom until 6061, which was something that I hadn't been aware of. But she had said that she didn't want to be superintendent for all the tea in China, but when it was offered to her by William Cozine, she decided that she would accept the role uh, Mr. Cozine was a teacher at the school. He was also the board secretary, which is a bit, bit unusual, I would think. But when he offered her the position, and I'm not quite sure, apparently under the authority of the board, I'm assuming, she wasn't too sure she wanted to take it, but she did. She was an unusual person for her day and time, I think, because um, she had a degree from the University of Illinois in Chicago in bacteriology, And uh, she had an undergraduate degree in education biology, but um, hadn't taught in elementary school prior to that. Well, that's not exactly true. She did teach for two years in Glen Ellen. And then when she became superintendent, 
she had a lot going on right away um, because this was a time when uh, there was a lot of growth to the south. An area called Skyline was being built first and then, of course, Carroll Stream. And the whole area was just exploding. We don't have exactly the enrollment figures for that time, but we do have some of the population figures, which I'll talk about in a moment. But the whole area of growth was such that by the time the new building, the three-room brick building, was built, it was already filled to capacity. There was no space. So Jay Stream said that he would build a four-room school, Carroll Stream School initially. Part of that was due to the fact that the board didn't have any more bonding power because they had built the new Cloverdale School, the brick school, at a bond rate of $100,000. Jay Stream built Carroll Stream School, and he leased the classrooms for two years to the school district for a dollar a year until they could come up with the bonding power to pay for the school. Wow. Yes. Very interesting. <laughs> and before um, they even got to that point, we started with four classrooms and had to add eight more almost immediately in a gymnasium. This was a pattern that continued throughout Elsie Johnson's career as a superintendent. It was from one building to the next building to the next building. And just to shed a little light on that, the population of Carroll Stream in 19 was 832. In 1970, it was 4,434. It's quite an increase. <laughs> yes. By 1980, however, it was 15,472. In 1990... 31,716. So obviously with a greater population growth, we're going to have more <laughs> students need to be educated. Yes. Right. So Elsie Johnson is building buildings and she was building buildings places for students to be educated. At a very high rate. Um, of course, after Carroll Stream School, the next school that was built was Jay Stream School, opened in 1963. However, it's not the Jay Stream School that we know now. Jay Stream School at that time, was what we now know as Roy DeShane School. And I, Roy DeShane... I was aware of that. <laughs> Roy DeShane was the county superintendent of schools at that time. And the schools flip-flopped when J Stream was built, which opened in 1968. And it had something to do with the fact that J Stream students wanted to keep their mascot, the Jaybird... <laughs> The Jayhawk. Jay, yeah. at, at that time, it was called the Jaybird. Oh, was it? Really? <laughs> I know it's a little unusual. And um, their song. So that's why they flipped the names of the schools. And the school that we know as uh, J-Stream, of course, had been built as Roy Shane, and it was an unusual concept for construction because it was built with pods mm -hmm. originally, and it was kind of op open classroom, open classroom. format. Mm -hmm. Yes, correct. A concept that apparently did not work out real well. <laughs> At any rate, um, construction continued, and in uh, uh, 1978, Western Trail School was built. It was not completed on time for school to begin, so there were split sessions for a few weeks until it was um, opened a little later in the fall, but it did open in time for it there to be school for most of the year. 
And then in 1981-82, there was another school built in Hanover Park. Now, this would have been right about the time that Elsie Johnson retired. Mm -hmm. And at her retirement celebration, it was announced that the new school would be named the LCC Johnson School. And she did not know this in advance. It was a surprise for her. It was kind of a neat thing. Any idea how she took the news? She took it very, she was very honored, very flattered that this had happened. She felt that it was, um, and I quote, it was the grand finale to an exciting and exhausting career. I felt so honored that I was recognized while I was alive to enjoy the honor. Hmm. She was a a pretty um, involved person. She spent a lot of time out in the schools, checking things out, being involved in the community. She started a preschool program, PTA, um, that met once a month with parents and preschoolers at the Aldrin Community Center in Armstrong Park. The Aldrin Community Center is no longer there. But at that point in time, the district office was also located in Armstrong Park. There was a small house off to the side of the parking lot, and that's where Elsie Johnson had her office. That little program was something that uh, was fairly well attended. Parents came, they had a program, and the children then had something, that they an activity that they would do as well. One of the things that I remember about that, because I was part of it, was that there was always a floral arrangement on the refreshment table. She loved to garden, and she loved to arrange flowers, and she would always make sure that everything looked very nice. She wanted it to be a special um, opportunity for people to gather <laughs> and to be pleasant, uh, a pleasant surroundings. She was also uh, a real trailblazer, I would say. In 1972... Um, she learned that the Northern Illinois Superintendents Roundtable were changing their bylaws. And what they were changing their bylaws to do was to allow women to become members. And she became a member. She went on to be the membership chairman the next year. The following year, she was the secretary. And in 1981, she was the president of the organization. This was kind of unusual for even women to be superintendents. There were three in Boyd, in uh, the county, in DuPage County, uh, at the time that she was superintendent in the later latter part of her tenure, even for women to be superintendents across the country during this time frame was kind of unusual. So she was kind of a trailblazer with hmm. regard to that. Wonderful, wonderful. Carol, are there... Any additional interesting facts that you can share about the district's first 62 years that we may have overlooked during our conversation so far? I think that um, District 93 is a very unique example of how we have come from an agrarian society to a suburban society that has always highlighted education, but the form of that education And what it has uh, morphed into, if you will, has changed so dramatically. And it's very interesting to see how those young school children who in the 1900s were trudging off to school or riding their horses to school and finding ways to 
learn to read, write, and do arithmetic now are learning how to do all of those things with technology. Who would have thought that we had come so far in such a short period of time? Yeah, advances have been amazing. Well, this has been a terrific conversation, Carol. I thank you so much for being here and sharing a little bit about the CCSD-93's history. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Talk D93 listeners, please subscribe to Talk D93 on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. And don't miss a thing from CCSD93 by following us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. You can also find me on Twitter at drhilld93. Join us next time for a conversation with CCSD93's second full-time superintendent of schools, John DeBuno, as we discuss his tenure.